0: In terms of welcoming people to the place, um, the first thing I would say to any new visitor is, you know, of course, welcome to the farm, you know, and from there, I would just let people know what we do. You know, we, we use agriculture as a way to provide for people who are disadvantaged in our community. Everything else that we do, you know, and, and our visitation uh, is really broad, you know, we, we have a lot of uh, new parents with infants, and then they'll come up to probably the age of eight or 10. And then gradually, when they become teenagers, you know, they're getting interested in different things. You know, the, the farm does lots of different things. It means lots of different things to people. But I think the farm itself, it's always that we're a working farm. We use agriculture to engage with disadvantage in our community so that people have a positive experience and can be supported and grow through that.
1: That was Andrew Phillips. You might already know that voice if you visited the farm in recent years. He's just one of the passionate members of staff lucky enough to call the farm his workplace. The Collingwood Children's Farm is a special place. It was born from a vision and continued for 40 years on the backs of volunteers, parents, staff, children and countless others who have given their time and energy. The newest chapter in Victoria's oldest continuously operating farm has been a pioneering force in the community engagement arena whilst bringing accessible agricultural education right to Melbourne's doorstep. In this episode, we celebrate the 40-year milestone by piecing together its rich history and taking a look into its future. It all began in the Collingwood Town Hall. My name's Caroline Hogg. Um, I was a councillor in the city of Collingwood from 1970 to 1979, during which time the idea of the Collingwood Children's Farm sprang into life. It was the brainchild of Councillor June Bradbury and Youth and Recreation Officer Peter Harry. The land, and it's a complicated story, that became available along with some floodplain land as a result of the convent closing down, the Commonwealth, I think, taking over that land and La Trobe then being prepared to offload some of it for the purposes of an urban farm but also for local allotments, etc. That's it in a nutshell. The Sisters of the Good Shepherd sold the convent site in 1974 to the Department of Education, who then leased the site to educational organisations. Between 1974 and 1979, the farm was used by a commercial flower grower, whilst other parts of the farm were left to the blackberries as the educational organisations figured out what they might do with the land. Pam Morgan was a live-in manager for 20 years and a person who nursed and cared for the farm in its infancy. She truly lived through its early formative challenges.
0: I think the main things were the ongoing plans for development. I mean, even before that, um, getting get, securing the land as crown land for use as a children's farm was a big issue because Latrobe. Uni, were, it was health sciences out there and they got these, um, these architects or planners to design a campus and they had pictures of people with, like Eaton or something like that, people with little straw boaters canoeing in the river and all of this sort of stuff and a grand imposing entrance. Anyway, but I went and talked to the union of students' union at the campus, and most of the health science students were people who were actually in employment, studying, and had no intention of wearing a striped blazer and a <laughs> straw boater. I mean, <laughs> it was an easy fight, that bit. <laughs> Everyone thought it was nuts. But anyway again it was i can really attribute that directly to john kane who was premier at the time who in order to secure the land for the children's farm at no detriment to latrobe uni was a time when a lot of um a lot of schools had been closed in the kennedy era and there was there were, was vacant land, so he was able to compensate La Trobe Uni with a site that had been a primary school, I think, in closer to their main operations. And so they were compensated through this um, land grant, which allowed the children's farm land to be gazetted. So that was the first big fight.
1: Pam Morgan explains how the farm managed to service an ever-changing community. I think
0: what we thought the farm could be uh, developed in tandem with the local community and also these, you know, this feedback from agencies and schools in the area. I used to have this vision of kids, you know, when when a kid's been in trouble or not. A high achiever it's like they carry their um caseload on their back you know they never get away from it that people have heard about them or have certain expectations that they'll not behave appropriately or whatever so we we developed this approach i think in my mind it was that all of that gets left at the gate and it they are treated on the farm as they behave on the farm. Now that still meant that a lot of kids just didn't quite know how to behave. So I think everyone's seen kids who go to the bush and the first thing they do is get a stick and start whacking stuff because it's all so unfamiliar. So I think then the nurturing part of what they could do at the farm became an important part of what it could mean in that community. If you imagine, you know, there isn't even an understanding in particularly in the more developed part of collingwood although it's all all flats now but at a much higher income level but not an understanding of what it that a tree might mean shade or what it in the ways in which it could change the environment for you so it was all trying to build up in people that understanding that it, of it all working that you could see that um, the sheep, there was lots of sheep poo under the trees because they sat in the shade and they pooed where they were, that sort of thing happening, trying to develop that observational level. And, and the caring and adopting some of those kids who really loved the place but were not particularly um, model citizens outside of the place, uh, getting them to take ownership of the farm and show it off to others so I can remember this um, kid in those days that was sort of punk stuff with all your clothes held together by safety pins and a mohawk I think he had as well taking little groups of little kids round to bottle feed the lambs and he was the one who was the knowledgeable one and he got all this sort of prestige from those people. So just shaking things
1: up that way was a really big part of it. Pam's vision for youth engagement is best seen in the young farmers program. It's still going strong, nurturing the next generation. One of the first young farmers, Siobhan, reflects on her time there.
2: And that was when I, I, we ate the sheep that we bottle-fed. So it's my first yeah, bottle feed this, and then now it's there. And th- but it was a good way of knowing exactly where meat and veggies mm. and stuff came from. Um, like my favourite was all the mums going, when you're milking the cow and, you know, does your little girl want to have a go or, you know, da-da-dum, and they'd say, what's his name? And I would just sit there and go, well, her name is... And then, you know, you'd get another his and you go, go... Um, <laughs> and actually just even the mums didn't f- you know forgot that only females gave milk yeah. you know, it was, but it was an interesting way of changing language even mm. uh, that's all right I mean when you think about it, we've you know quite a few of us have, have taught thousands of people how to milk a cow mm. not just a couple hundred or anything yeah. you know like yeah. when you think of just how many people you've taught that skill to it's not doesn't seem big but it is
1: it's the front line of education for people not so lucky to have a first-hand understanding of where foods come from. We asked Siobhan how she got in contact with the farm.
2: Well, the first time was um, just in primary school before the farm started. So we came down um, and with a five or six of us and got to have a look at it all and it was just an amazing space. And then I think I started to come down about a year later regularly and... So, yeah, and then I wagged a lot of school. Um, school wasn't suiting me. And here was a lot safer than knocking around at shopping centres and places like that. So I came down here daily. <laughs> and then my school would also come down as part of their program. So I would sit in the loft and read um, the diaries. <laughs> so I used to read the early diaries and, um, you know, kind of like... <laughs> Oh, there was a crop back there, and it's like, ooh, that was different. <laughs> it was like, you know, like it wasn't always perfect. <laughs> but, yeah, it was an interesting, really interesting time. I, the farm and I have been friends for nearly all of the 40 years.
1: After the Young Farmers Program, Siobhan went on to become a member of staff at the children's farm. She eventually left, but continues to work with animals today. Margaret Cooper came in as manager of the farm from 2001
3: to 2005. So I have got a background in um, bookkeeping and accountancy as well, (laughs) back in my early days. So I sort of knew how to um, to read the figures and how to um, look at ways of um, making more money. And one of the things we did, which was probably you'd have to look that one up too, we started with... um, we started the Collingwood Children's Farm, Farmers Market, which, uh, was done with Miranda Sharp, who runs the Melbourne Farmers Market now. And it was, I think, the first month in the first Melbourne market, actually. And that's what really saved it. Um, that was the thing we made. They used to run a fair few fundraisers, but though, when, when I looked at how they ran them and what they were, they didn't actually make any money at the, at the end of the day. So this was something that really did make some money. And it's still going. And it's really been very successful. And that's, I think that was the main thing that saved the farm financially, was the farmer's market.
1: The farm, like most not-for-profit community organisations, has had its fair share of financial difficulties. But it's often through such challenges that communities can really shine. Now to Frank.
4: So Hi, everyone. I'm Frank Palomares and... I first visited the farm when I was about 13 with my school program and I eventually ended up being employed there because I just saw once they were safe with an animal, um, their confidence grew and I remember, again, a really powerful experience for me. We were working with a boy there at the farm who had, had issues um, and sort of struggled at times to um, to communicate those issues and... I was in the office one day and I, I heard a conversation and I'm thinking, oh, geez, that person's having, you know, is disclosing some really full-on stuff out in the barn area. I better just go out and whoever he's talking with, you know, give them up the office space because I just thought he must have been talking to a family member or a carer or someone or just someone from the public. I went outside and he actually had a little lamb in his arms and he was telling his little, this little lamb all his problems and he's me thinking that he was talking to a person. So, you know, animals, again, are very therapeutic because, you know, he, he's this big boy holding a little um, tiny lamb who was feeling comforted in his arms and he's telling him all his problems. So, yeah, I've seen a lot of powerful experiences as well. Um, that animals have have initiated in um, in children and, and hence you know a lot of my experiences there at the farm i mean i'm I'm a social worker, I'm also an equine therapist, so I've been able to bring in all my passions of the love of working with people and the love of working with animals and sort of embed that and emerge both of them together to so they help each other. So, yeah, I'm really grateful for my experience at the farm. For me, it was a a huge platform where I learnt a lot. The
1: farm as a place of learning and growth was one of the big themes in all the conversations we had throughout this project, along with the gratitude to the farm for the lessons and the opportunities gifted to them. Alex Walker managed the farm from July 2005 to February 2018
4: that thing and when i got interviewed they they asked me that sim, a similar question to what you are what was the main reason what i looked at the farm as, as a resource for the kids from around this area and this area now is it's basically nearly a whole metropolitan area that they need a resource where they can actually feed see and feel and touch things like animals that are farm animals where food comes from where you know whether it's chickens or cows or or whatever this is how food food comes from these, and this is you've got to show respect to the animals.
1: Cheryl Cameron was on the committee of management for over twenty years and it still holds a special place in her heart.
5: I really like the areas along the river banks close to the rivers, and when you take I'll probably start crying in a minute. one of the things that, makes the farm so special for me, is the response when the kids see the vast open spaces and these little two and three-year-olds that, you know, normally only have about this much space, can just run and take off unimpeded. And one of, I love the physical stuff of the farm, don't get me wrong, but because I worked in children's services for all my fabulous career, it just warmed the cockles of my heart and was a delight to be able to introduce so many children and their parents because the parents would often come on excursions with us and and so it would be um, a, a fabulous thing.
1: The open space, trees, animals, flowing water and public access designed for children is rare so close to the city and only getting rarer. Current CEO of the farm, Connor Hickey,
6: has big plans for the farm in this ever-growing city. I'm very concerned about the current climate crisis. Uh, I think that given, you know, that we are this beautiful asset in Yarra and a lot of people come down here, I think that, you know, we're in a position to be educating people about the the changes that they can be making but also you know that this is such a wonderful space for community to come together and that idea of community connections um, getting people outside outdoors mental health and well-being that goes along with spending time in nature is huge so i sort of see this space as this magical place that could be so much to so many people i think We do have the potential to get carried away with trying to be too much for too many people. So, you know, we we do tend to find ourselves saying, you know, let's stick to our mission, which is to support people in in the community experiencing disadvantage. So we do that through our volunteer programs, um, through working with young people who, you know, are facing some challenges either at school or at home, disability support services, Um, we really focus our primary work around uh, engaging with those groups of people. So, yeah, doing more of that, um, doing it better, increasing our education around the farm through engaging with community organisations, so working with Wurundjeri uh, Council to develop education around Indigenous agricultural practices, Working with school groups to develop education around sustainability and working with our community organisations to provide meaningful, engaging opportunities for people in the community experiencing
1: hardship. It's safe to say the farm is in good hands as it enters a mature age of 40. A big thank you to all who've given time to make this podcast possible. If you'd like to hear extended conversations, just visit the farm's website and head to the Education Resources page. All of these conversations are there in full. I'm Margot Foster. This podcast was part of a bigger project made possible by the Public Records Office of Victoria. It's produced by Patrick Beggs of Purr Production in partnership with the Collingwood Children's Farm. It was produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We recognise that sovereignty was never ceded.